Why does someone leave the religion they were born into? What causes people to convert to a new belief system? What goes on inside a high-demand religion? Listen to the experiences of ordinary people as they answer those questions and more. Hello. Today we are going to be interviewing Michael Lee, who, Mike, if you don't mind telling me the name of the religious group you belong to. I was part of a small evangelical group. It was called Cornerstone Christian. It was a break off of a church in Wisconsin. It was an evangelical Pentecostal church. So and a lot of that fun stuff of speaking in tongues and prophecy, all that jazz. Okay. All right. So why don't you tell me about your congregation? Large, small? It was a small group. At its height, it was maybe about 25 to 30 members. It was a break-off church of a church that I don't even remember the name of anymore. I was involved with it for about eight to nine years. We were part of that. I believe my mother joined that around, I was around nine or 10 years old. So it was about 17 or 18 when I left. Okay, okay. Was your mother born Pentecostal or did she convert? My mother converted. I had been about six or seven years old when she converted to it, maybe a little earlier. She has, she's still very religious, so I often get this very lovely story about her watching Pat Robertson in the 700 Club and that being her conversion moment. Ah, okay, okay. I imagine that uh, show probably reached a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) For better or worse, it, it was you know, on the air for a long time. Yeah, uh, in my opinion, it would be worse. Most of my life has spent as a amateur historian, and I studied sociology and history for a lot of my life, and with a, a very a focus on Christian nationalism and the history of the influence of things like people like Pat Roberts and Jerry Falwell. Mm-hmm. So that has a big effect on the way I view these things. Mm-hmm. I imagine it would. So how did she go from that to Pat Robertson to Pentecostalism? Was it just what was around or the church she tried? Do you know? It's, it's a little hard to remember, but the best recollection. My parents got divorced when I was like 10 years old and we moved from Washington State to Wisconsin to be near family. My mother struggled with alcohol addiction. As far as I know, it's kind of just the church down the street, the original. Within a year, they had broke the church that I spent most of my time with, the group that I spent most of my time with had broken away Mm -hmm. um, into a smaller group. We met in uh, the gymnasium of a school that was rented out and were led by this very charismatic pastor. Right. So you went with your mother to the break-off church when you were a kid? Yes. Um, Okay. We were were very involved in this. Um, We were involved with various other churches. My mother sent me to a lot of youth groups. I attended religious school from grades five until my, the end of my sophomore year of high school. Okay. Um, My younger brother as well attended the religious school from grades one until, one until eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the way through middle school as well. So was that school attached to the church or was it just non non-denominational, non-connected? It was not connected. Um, this the school that I attended half of elementary school and all of middle school through is actually still around. It's in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's like Brookfield Academy or something like that. Uh but yeah, it was a different one, but all of the, at least myself and the pastor's son 
went to that school as well as my brother and the other pastor's kids of the church we attended. We all went to that school together. Okay. And then for myself, come high school, I left and I attended a, I attended Milwaukee Lutheran High School, which is also still around. I attended that through my sophomore year before I left and went to public school. Okay. And was that by your choice that you wanted to go to public school? Yes. That was very much through my choice. That actually ties into the story behind why I actually walked away, began my walking away from the faith. Uh, Fair enough. At one point, while I was a part of this denomination, I was a missionary. My family was not, but I personally was. I spent a couple of months in South America proselytizing through uh, Teen Mania, which, if anybody doesn't know, it's a very large kind of non-denominational evangelical youth ministry service. You know, So as a teenager, you did that? Yes, I, I was about 15 at the time. And you went by yourself with this group? Yes, I went by myself. I spent approximately six weeks in Sucre, South Bolivia, or Sucre, Bolivia in South America. And yeah, we would go on and we would do like, we would do these plays and then we would proselytize to people and preach to people afterward. Very eye-opening experience as a 15-year-old American, to say the least. I imagine. I would think in some ways it'd be a really good experience to be exposed to a different culture. Oh, it was fantastic. It was life-changing. And to this day, my, my beliefs on humanity and society are very much shaped by those things. It was interesting. We stayed in the basements of churches. We helped build churches. We drove up into the mountains and tried to preach to the Quechuan people of Bolivia that are very secluded. That's very interesting. And I want to circle back to that. But what I'd like to ask you first is growing up back at your church, back in your congregation, like what would a typical service be like? How many days a week? How many hours? Sure. Uh, the, the average service lasted about two to three hours, depending on the day. It would start with your typical evangelical worship service, singing, you know, the, the praise service. Mm-hmm. And if you just look up any regular YouTube video of just somebody at a church service singing, eyes closed, hands raised, it was that kind of thing. Okay. Um, then it would usually move on to approximately a 45-minute sermon. And then from there was usually about a half an hour prayer prophecy area. You know, people would come up, they'd do their testimony or their whatever they have to say, say their little prophecies or whatever or whatnot. And then from there, you know, that was pretty much the end of it. A lot of times, me as a teenager or a kid, we would break off and we'd do little our groups of the teenage ministry or when I was younger before that, where I'd work in the daycare with my mother or somebody else and help out with the kids that okay. were too young to get through all of that. Um, so how many days a week? Twice? Uh, so those? So for the main group, we did Sundays, and then they did Wednesday Bible meetings at the pastor's house. But along with all of that, they were affiliated with multiple other groups or churches in the area. So I would do Wednesday teen meetings at a larger church. Okay. Uh, We would do Saturdays. We would do another like Bible study at a different church. And then throughout the week, which was very kind of intermittent, we would, we do Bible studies at people's houses. So you're saying you had Sunday, two to three hours, then you had another one Wednesday. Yes. And then you also had Saturday occasionally for part of the year. And then 
also during the week in the evening, you had Bible study at people's houses. That's, that's a lot. Yeah, it was. Our whole life was really just consumed with it. My mother was a single mother mm -hmm. raising two boys. So she really didn't have any direction or guidance outside of this evangelical faith, this evangelical teaching. Right. Um, you know, and all the trappings that come with what a lot of people think of when they hear evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Well, just for those who might not know, when you say all the trappings that come with evangelicalism, what do you have in mind there? Evangelicalism has, in the last year or two, has kind of come to the forefront of what I believe, or at least my understanding of what people think of when they think of very adamant Christianity these days. Okay. Um, the speaking of tongue, prophesying, the laying hands of, of prayer, mm -hmm. faith healing, things like that. Well, you know, pretty much That's interesting because short of snake handling. <laughs> I haven't heard anyone actually talk about snake handling so far. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little more fringe and it's a little more of a like a southern kind of thing, but right. you know, it, right. It's a good, it's a good point of contrast, I find. Yeah, yeah, I'd really like to hear someone uh, talk about that, because I have a lot of questions on how exactly that would work. Yeah, me as yeah. well. Tail for another time, I guess. It, it kind of depended, uh, it depended on who the church decided to integrate with that given week. Um, mm -hmm the community around it was very diverse. Sometimes we would attend services where they were dancing. There's a lot of speaking in tongues in pretty much every service. Um, right. Not uncommon for even our church services to be just interrupted by somebody with their speaking in tongues, whatever you want to call it. Uh, right. Best thing I heard it referred to lately was uh, tongue jazz. <laughs> <laughs> it, it helps to make a little light of it for me. Sure, sure, yeah. If you don't mind segueing into a different part of the community you were involved with, could you tell, what could you tell me about the leadership? of your congregation? So we were led by a husband and wife. And the husband was the pastor and the wife was the woman's pastor. Okay. Uh, at first they were very nice people. We learned a lot about the hierarchical parts of the Christian faith. It was very much woman serves man, child serves mm -hmm. parent kind of thing, which could be conflicting. I was a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kid during the most of it. You know, we all know how preteens and teenagers can be. So it was formative into trains of thoughts that even to this day at 40 years old, I still struggle with. Like I said, they were very nice people at first, very welcoming until my mother decided that it was time for us to move on and to leave this group, this denomination, whatever you want to call it. So was this the breakoff group yes. that you guys had gone to? Yes. Okay. And then you went from there to another group. So from there, my mother and my brother continued as my brother is too young to know the difference. This was when I began to break away. And okay, yeah. This, yeah, this can be actually very much pinpointed to a very singular incident. Okay, uh, so you had said that they um, they were very nice at first until your mother decided that it was time for you guys to go to another church. Yes, um, and even before then, there were issues that arose. Um, my mother was the only single parent and with all the struggles that came with, she got a lot of condemnation, a very large amount of, like I said, as it was very patriarchal and hierarchical, right. she got a lot of 
well, you don't have a husband or your husband is not around because you are a sinner and God looks down on you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did people say that to her? Behind the scenes, yes. Oh my goodness. Uh, Yeah. uh, She, I'm not even going to get into how this affects her now because I I feel like that's kind of beside the point. Right. Uh, And that's her story, I understand. But yes, that was very much the attitude. We were considered outcasts very much within this group but it was such a small group i mean you said it was like 30 some people yeah it was that's um, crazy there aren't enough people to be have outcasts are there <laughs> you would think that you really would think that um, <laughs> you think it'd be like a so, tight-knit group yeah you would think so going to religious school i went with the pastor's son who is also my age we were very close for a very long time, but that's where I saw the cracks in the belief system start to form was his attitudes. Part of the reason that we did leave was because of the other children's treatment towards myself and my brother. We were very much left out, very much made fun of. I was definitely told that we came from a background where my father was abusive to me and my mother. That's why we left. And we were very much told that it was our fault because we were not good enough Christian. That's horrible. Yeah, it's... Uh-uh. it's I can't even imagine why someone would ever say such a thing. Well, it's it's very much ingrained into the the patriarchal and the hierarchical belief. It's so part they're... of the reason why... They don't believe in divorce, like even in cases of abuse? So they weren't necessarily against divorce, but it was very much frowned upon. If you look into a lot of biblical scholar, fundamentalist belief, divorce is very much looked down upon. Right. Uh, It was very fundamentalist, but sugarcoated at the same time. The, the, the fundamental evangelical church of the last 40 or 50 years does a very good job of kind of sugarcoating that patriarchal mindset of whatever the man does is right and the woman deserves whatever he gives. Them. Right. It just, I, it just seems so crazy that somebody would bring that up to you as the child. When you have zero control over what your parents did, whether they stayed together or not. True, but kids kids take after their parents and they, they repeat what their parents say. So being right. the friend of the pastor's son, this stuff kind of comes out inadvertently. Mm, I suppose that's true. There is an instance which might not necessarily seem like a big deal, but I had been about seventh or eighth grade and the pastor's son wanted a tape of rap song and he asked me for it. So being a you know a kid I'm, okay let me give my friend what i want well when when his parents the pastor and his wife found it it was a whole lot of your son is leading my son down the road to hell right. you're a terrible sinner your son is a horrible child and all i was trying to do was just make friends with somebody who was you know be friends with somebody who was i thought my friend right Right. And he, he got in trouble and threw you under the bus. Exactly. And then of course you're the kid of the divorced woman. Exactly. Right. Uh, that's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's... was that why, I'm sorry, was that why you uh, switched schools because of that treatment, that sort of treatment? No. So that was when I was in middle school. I had graduated from that school. It only went to eighth grade. And then I was sent to a Lutheran high school. Um, oh, okay. Being my mother, that because that's where a lot of the people I knew already went. And that was another thing. My mother being single mother we were we were poor so she relied a lot on financial help from this church and organization which in the long run led to a lot of these attitudes that kind of demonized her these the group was they would be very nice and very welcoming and very open financially as long as you stuck till stuck to their teaching is the second you deviated a little bit then 
you are a monster, not a good person. You're not a good Christian and we should have never helped you to begin with. Did they try to set her up with people? I mean, what, did they pressure her to get remarried or anything like that? Not that I believe so. There were definitely times that I can recall where they would try to introduce her to other men, maybe once or twice, but she's a very strong independent woman for being someone who is, like I said, to this day, still relatively religious, even into her 60s. So it wasn't a whole lot of you need to get married because that's God wants. It was more the demonization of the fact that she wasn't married that was the key issue. Right. Okay, I see. So it wasn't as though they thought she could fix the problem necessarily. They just, it just was. Kind of. Uh, there was definitely this underlying current of you could fix the problem if you were a better Christian, if you were a better person, if you had better faith. Uh, um, okay. She did a, she tried really hard to shield us from a lot of these aspects of that, to shield us from what the adults said to her and stuff. So a lot of this comes out of like conversations I've had with her after the fact. We eventually, uh, in terms of my relationship with my mother, we actually reached a point where we just don't talk about it anymore, more so because it's more painful for her than me which is one of the reasons why I agreed to do this. And I just turned 40 and I've just kind of reached a point where I'm like, I'm tired of being quiet about this. And this happens in churches and in congregations and whatever groups, cults, whatever you want to call them mm -hmm. all around the country every single day. And if I can get this out and somebody can relate and it can help somebody, you know, I want to do that. Good for you. Well said. Thank you. It's been weird for me because I've gone to a farther extreme and I've come to this belief over years of study and my own experience where I just believe that all religion is a cult until it gets popular enough. You know, I say that half joking. So, I mean, you can cut that out if you want, but no, no I'm not going to cut that out. I mean, uh, I think that there's a lot of um, emphasis placed on the exact definition of what a cult is with the bite model and the other models. But I do think that people might tend to underestimate the damage that groups can do with, with their influence, even when they aren't cults by the definition. So whether something's a cult or not, to me, the effect it has on people more. Oh, I agree with you totally. Yeah. So... Um, circling back to your missionary work in Bolivia, you said? Yes. Okay. I was uh, in Sucre, Bolivia. I'm very interested in missionary work as a, the techniques that missionaries use when trying to bring someone into a group. So anything okay. that you can say to shed light on that as far as, I don't want to say tactics because it makes it sound nefarious because I understand the people doing this work, they're not trying to be evil. From their point of view, it's the opposite. They're trying to save people. So I assume that the group that you were with, they chose who you would go to. So it wasn't um, so much targeting people, right? No. So it's a little bit different. Okay. I want you to give me a minute here and I will tell you about it. Okay. Um, so I came to this of my own accord. Like I said, I was about 14 or 15 at the time. So I don't remember how I came about it. It was probably through one of the churches that we attended. The way I did this was through Teen Mania Mystery Ministries, which is it still around to, the, to this day. It's one of the largest youth missionary outreach groups in the world right now. Teen um, Mania Ministries. Correct. Okay. So what you had to do was you would have to either have the financial capital to be able to send your child, or in my situation, you had to fundraise. And it cost about $3,000. And this was in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. So about $3,000 for about a, a four to six week trip. And whoever signed up was allowed to choose wherever they went. I chose Bolivia because it was the cheapest. So I did that. So we fundraised, we sold candy, we took donations, we went door to door 
you know, almost kind of like a Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts-esque fundraising thing to raise the money. And then once I raise the money, sign up through this ministry and choose where I'd want to go. And then I would go. So my best recollection is at the time, so we flew off. I would, I was based in Wisconsin. That's where I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We traveled to Florida where we were set up on the Florida State campus for about a week to have services and preaching and just kind of learn some of the basics of what we were going to do for the next few weeks. Okay. So in Gainesville? Yes. Okay. Um, So the focus for at least our group and it was pretty, pretty uniform, but there was a little differences depending on where you went on to the world because there was, I want to say at least 90 to a hundred different countries that they sent groups to. Wow. That's quite an operation. Yeah. It's, it's very large. Like I said, it's still around. So if you want to look into it, you can get a little bit better research that I can give you off the top of my head. How many Um, kids would you say were there? Oh, four to 5,000. What? Yeah. I mean, like there at the same time. When we went to Florida, you had all of the groups that were going around to all hundred countries and we were in groups of 100 to 200 for us. I believe my group was about 50 that went. Right. But they gathered everybody together before they left. And yeah, we're a few thousand kids. And we do team building activities and stayed in dorms, provided meals and all of that stuff. But yeah, we did team building activities and then we would practice out, at least for our group, it was the skit that we were going to perform because we would go... Once we left, we would, we would do a, like an acting out skit to like music and do a voiceover thing. Were these both boys and girls? Both. Yes. Okay. Boys and girls. We were housed separately to avoid temptation. (laughs) We were. How'd that work out? (laughs) My very first girlfriend I met there. So take that out. Not too well. We were, but it was very uh, youth-focused ministries, so we were a lot of sermons, uh, because every day, three or four times a day, we had sermons and prayer and worship, but it was very youth-focused, so it was a lot about avoiding temptation, avoiding sexual temptation, a lot of preaching about the woman's role to be subservient to men. Lovely. Uh, Yeah, very lovely. Great thing to teach a 14, 15-year-old girl. Were there dress codes for for the girls? No, not necessarily. These things were not explicit, but they were implied. Yeah. It was a lot of people from a lot of places. There was a fella, I couldn't remember his name, but he had a mohawk and wore chain. And that was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of girls with short hair, but don't reveal cleavage. If you were found to have something above for the girls to have a, a skirt above above your knee, mm-hmm. then you would be pulled aside and spoken. Right, right. You know? Okay, okay. Um, we were even told that like, if you got too close to somebody of the opposite sex, that you would be spoken to, which happened to me on multiple occasions. So there was that you just couldn't, you could not be too friendly to somebody of the opposite gender. Right, right. That's what it sounds like. Boys were expected to be with boys and girls were expected to be with girls. And there was a lot of teachings that would involve us being segregated by gender. Mm-hmm. So you would do that. You would go through that. That lasted about a week, maybe 10 days. And then we would fly off into the various countries that we were to go to. And so your missionary work primarily was doing this skit and then asking the, the, the audience to come and get saved. Exactly. Okay. Um, and then you would spend, you know, one-on-one time in small groups talking to whatever individual people. That being said, I spent time in Bolivia, which is a Spanish speaking country and our skits were in English. Okay, I was about to ask that actually. So what they would do is they would use music in our our little play to draw a crowd who would stand around and watch this a bunch of kids in costume and makeup and dancing around for 10 to 15, 20 minutes. Right. And then they would 
bring on an interpreter to say, well, if anybody wants to come receive Jesus, come ahead. So, you know, the message wasn't exactly got out there. It was just used to lure people through. To get the crowd. Yeah, to get a crowd. It was a lot more performative. Okay. And then it was meant to be a one-on-one ministry. I see. So you have the this big spectacle, the crowds gather, and then they use the Spanish speaking person to, to get the people in and then they'd break them off into individual ministry yes. sessions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sounds effective. Yeah, it was something. I mean, uh, there was a point where we traveled up into the Andes Mountains and we did the same thing, except the people up there were not Spanish-speaking Southern Americans. They were Quechuan Southern Americans, so they didn't even speak, a lot of them didn't even speak Spanish. They were native Quechuan people, right? Um, very far removed from the, the, the society and culture around there. So with that being said, I mean, we were taught, we were told things like stereotypes, like um, these are native peoples that don't know technology. And if you take their picture, they think you're going to steal their soul. And, you know, things that most people in the 1990s, no matter how remote, probably don't think. Right. These are not, it's not like we were in the middle of the Amazon rainforest to a tribe that had never (laughs) seen white people before. Right. Right. They might have a radio. They might have a television. Yeah, exactly. They've seen a camera. They wore modern clothes. They weren't remote located tribes, but we were told (laughs) those things. Right. Looking back, not the best way to convey to a teenage kid how to look upon somebody from that is not from America right you're kind of being told to look down on them yes very much so and I like I said there were thousands of us and at the end we when we flew back to states we all got together for a two-day giant service before we all went home so you got a chance to actually talk to people went to other places And I got to speak, this stands out in my head very strongly because there was a fellow that I got a chance to speak to who had gone to Ghana in Africa. Mm. He was told the very same thing. Oh, really? One thing he told me that really stuck out to me was these people don't know what it's like to live in a modern society. Not verbatim his words, but that was the gist of it. Yeah, that I question whether that was actually the case. Yeah, I I honestly don't honestly don't believe that that's the case for the people living there. But those were the kinds of things that you were taught that was even if it wasn't explicit, it was implicit, right? Even at 1415, you can see you can see some of the things that are underneath the lines there, right? Might be more obvious to me now than it was then. But even then, at the time, it was one of those things where it was this is a red flag it's a little bit racist a little bit a little bit yeah (laughs) a little bit uh yeah so that's very interesting thank you for sharing that missionary experience with me because i had not heard of the team media ministries before it was a life-changing event for sure even outside of the whole missionary work the other teenagers that were there with me had the best of intentions and really cared about these people. Of course, I, I certainly, you know, the the work was is intended to save people from what's perceived as eternal damnation, right? If you believe that, then you are doing a good thing. And yes, very much you know? so. Yeah. But if you don't mind, I'd like to go um, and follow up on what you said about the pastor and his wife when your mother was leaving the congregation. I realized we kind of dropped the thread there about what happened when she decided to leave. Yeah. So this is very still very vivid in my mind, even 20 some years later. My mother decided that she did not like the way that she was being treated and more so the way that myself and my brother were being treated by the kids and the adults in this group Um, so one day at one of the wednesday sermons or meetings at the pastor's house she decided to 
tell the pastor and his wife that we were going to leave the church. So what happened, what then proceeded to happen was we sat down in their living room, myself, my brother, my mother, the pastor and his wife, but not their kids. And my mother sat down to explain that she did not appreciate the treatment and that she felt that we had a grown uh, where we were and it was time to move on and to find another church. The next following 90 minutes consisted of a very long lecture and stern speaking to. <laughs> yeah, this one's a little difficult, so, but I... If you can tell, you know, if you're comfortable. Let's go. Um, All right, yeah. <laughs> there, are parts, there are very much parts of it that I do not remember because 16, 17 years old at the time. Right. And with all that comes with being a 16, 17 year old teenager, I, there are parts that I do remember almost out of body experience. But some of the things that I do remember saying almost verbatim were, you cannot raise these children by yourself. They are out of your control. And <sighs> that is as close to verbatim as I can get. They're out Remember? of your control. Yes. What does that mean? I wish I could tell you. Another, and this is, this is one that really struck me because this is where I kind of checked out was another phrase was your son will lead mine to hell. Um, and in reference to me and their oldest son, it was 90 minutes of you're, you are a terrible mother. You are not a good enough Christian. If you leave this church, your family will fall apart. Interesting. Um, yeah. Needless to say, the three of us are closer now than we have ever been, and we're very close. That's what led me to walk away from the faith. My after that point, my mother gave me the choice: like, you can continue to go. You're old enough; you can make your choice. You know, you can continue to go to church or not. And I chose not to, even though I did go back to it at a later stage. The hurt and the pain at that point was enough that I personally stepped away for a while. Right. Um, after that, about 90 minutes or so, we left these people's house in tears. My mother in tears to a point where she could not drive and I had to drive home. That is horrible. She was without a license. My mother was so broken up that she let her 17-year-old child without a driver's license drive the car home. <laughs> That is just horrible because even if you're leaving a congregation, like this is somebody that you've been holding in respect for years. Years. And they're they're talking to you like just just berating you. And that's emotionally very so abusive. It's extremely abusive. These are people that my mother looked up to and held in very high regard. Right. That and they knew up. that. Yes. They knew in that. Lowest of times. Right. She would be these people for their help and their guidance. People that when she had no one else to turn to, those were the ones. And when she decided that it was time to move on, all right. of the things that she turned to them for, all of the things that they told her, all of, they just turned around and threw all of these things right back at her in front of her two children. That is how emotionally devastating can that be for a single mother just doing the best that she can do. I mean, horrifying, my, just horrifying. My, my best friend called me up tomorrow and decided that all of the things that we spoke about in private, in person bonding, turned around and told me that all of these things are what are my flaws as a person? I'm a 40 man, I would break down in tears. It would break me as a person. I think that would, that's true of most people. And, and to air her dirty laundry, from what you're saying, they were airing her dirty laundry that she'd come to them for help with in front of her children. Yeah. Be because she decided to go worship somewhere else. Yeah. Because she decided she wanted to move to somewhere else. We ended up I said, I kind of stepped away, but her and my, she took my brother to a, a larger church, one that had more youth, more people that she could relate to and my brother could relate to. Which makes there sense. There were a, a lot of times where she, where she would say to me, come check this out, give it a chance, give it a try. There's a lot more people your age. But after that incident, I didn't want that. Right. Like I said, I got 
particular, I went, I gave it a shot again, like to the point where I, after being married, I drug my wife back to a church and was like, I need to give this a try one more time. Right. It wasn't the thing for me then, you know, and this was maybe seven, eight years later, but that was really the breaking part point where I was like, well, hey, religion, not good. And really started to break down for myself what just this whole faith thing was about. Do you do you mind sharing with me like, if you remember anything from that time period when you came back that led you to think, okay, maybe it's not just them. Maybe it's the whole thing. So that's a lot easier to remember because, you know, I was an adult, not a teenager at the time. Right. So my wife and I, we had a roommate. He was a very good friend of ours. He struggled with addiction. We had brought him in to live with us. Was and is still very much in the faith. So there was always that aspect to it. So uh, Christianity and that just general Christianity, not just the denomination, but general Christianity has always been It was part of your framework. Yes, very much. Right. So he was struggling with some addiction and he didn't necessarily have the religious framework, but he was falling on it to help him with his issues. And he was like, hey, go to church with me, man. And I was like, all right. Um, it's not my thing, but do it. Uh, right. So I started to go with church with him again. Okay. So you um, wanted to help him basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then getting back into it, I started to have these same feelings of what originally made me want to be a missionary to begin with. Because I was in, I was very much deep into it. I was baptized when I was a kid out of my own accord. I quote unquote spoke in tongues, even though I can distinctly remember that was me just trying to appease the adults in my life at the time. (laughs) Yeah. It was a whole thing. It was a night in somebody in the pastor's house, 15 adults literally laying their hands on me, speaking in tongues and praying for me until I spoke in tongues. Scare quotes there for the audio. Right. It's a miracle. It happened. It happened. No pressure at all. Yeah. 14 year old kid spoke in tongues because... 15 adults were telling them to do it. Right, right. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Oh, it happened. Keep trying, keep trying, trying. you know, I'm Uh going to prophesy over you. Here you go. It's going to happen. Right. Uh, But back to the point. So we, I started going with them every Sunday and then he, I I started to get these feelings of those, those good feelings of, of community and what it was like to be a part of this group again. Right. Uh, And just so I know, was that also sort of a Pentecostal style or was it another denomination? It was more kind of just this non-denominational, still in the evangelical mold, just not very, just not as structural. Okay. But it it was a little more, I wouldn't call it a mega church, Mm -hmm. but it was a large one. Okay. So we went for weeks and I started to get back into it and listening to the sermons and getting these feelings of community again to the point where I started actually tithing, which for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it goes to, I want to say the book of Leviticus, where it says God deserves 10% of all of your earnings. Right. put Put the 10% into the storehouse. You know, that is actually something I've been meaning to ask. Is is that required in the Pentecostal church as a rule to tithe 10%? I cannot say it is required, but I can say from my experience, you do it every week. And at least a chunk of this sermon, whether it be the whole sermon, if it's part of the pros- prosperity belief, or if it's just at the end, quoting biblical passages and saying, you need to give God your money. Right. Okay. It is very much encouraged. I can say that. All right. All right. Fair enough. So you were going to the church. It was a large church. Sorry, I I cut off your stream there. I just realized I, that's something I've been meaning to ask and I haven't ever covered. No worries. Yeah. So I I did that. um, And my wife who has never been particularly religious, even though she went to Lutheran school growing up, never been particularly religious. Um, Even though she was like, we need that money. I I continued to do it with the belief 
that the whole point of it is the promise that God will repay you. You give 10%, God gives back tenfold. Right. But I did it. I even convinced my wife to get baptized. After, I want to say about four to five months of that, I was kind of in my mid-20s, newly married, just kind of like, I can't really afford to keep giving money and... I work a full-time job. My wife works a full-time job. She was in school. It's exhausting to get up early on Sundays and go to church. So I kind of stopped going. After about a week or two of that, it was revealed to me that the pastor of that church had been caught in Vaseline church funds. Oh, yeah. No. I couldn't remember his name. He had recent, at the time, he had recently transferred from a church in Florida. Mm-hmm. And took over as the head pastor of this church. But I found that out. Before that happened, it was when my wife and I got married. And I had even talked her into doing like a a counseling thing at this church before we got married, where you would get together with a already married member of this church and they would teach you what biblical marriage should look like. People, they were opened up their home, fed us meals, talked to us. Great people. So we did that. Then we got married. And I believe it was after we got married, we came back from the honeymoon, which was the couple of weeks where I didn't go. And after being away from it, and then finding out this information about the pastor in Basilean, it was, that was my heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, you've you've been giving 10%. Yeah. You've been feeling like, okay, maybe I've, you know, found a place. Maybe I found a spiritual home, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Maybe it was right all along. Maybe I shouldn't have walked away to come back to it and have to deal with that was quite a thing. That, that, like I said, that was the break. I mean, this had been, up until that point, this was, what was I... 28, 29 at the time. Mm-hmm. So this was... That was 11 years ago? Perhaps. That was 11 years ago, but this was 21, 22 years of my life that I was brought up believing all of this. Right. Um, even before this initial church that I had been speaking about all the time, we went to church. Before my parents' divorce, before we had moved to Wisconsin, we went to church. I went to a church as a kid, except then it was just more of, this is what you do on a Sunday morning. You right. Know? It's kind of that leave it to beaver, 50s America attitude. You got up Sunday, you got dressed, you went to church, and that was just part of American life. Okay. Um, talking 20 plus years of my life of this just being ingrained in you went to the church you found out the pastor was embezzling these funds now at that point you know of course you're going to have an emotional reaction and you're just like i'm done but did you did did you do you at that point and at this point still believe in the the tenets of the christian church where were you at then and where are you at now all right. That's, that's a great question. I, I really, I really enjoy that question because this is something that I think about a lot. Then it was walking away was in anger, shame and embarrassment. I, between that and all of the stuff that I had gone through as a kid and all the stuff that my, my family had gone through that finding that out really just welled up a big wall, big ball of, of anger and resentment. And it was very much a uh, F this, I want nothing to do with this. Right. Uh, Over what it led to ended up being positive. I've since then, I've been a big history and sociology person. I've always been fascinated by how people interact, how society works. Since I was a small child, I've read history books and I've studied history. I did, you know, I studied some history in college and like that. And and even to this day, history and sociology, that is my thing. That's what I do. I I, I can stand up, I could give speeches on that kind of thing. So that led me to actually learning about how is Christianity and American Christianity led to where our society has become today. And that's the very positive part of it. Because by wondering these questions, 
I begin to look into the history. I begin to read authors. Um, I'm going to take a minute right here and I'm going to shout out a fantastic book for anybody who might be listening. It's called Jesus and John Wayne by uh, Professor Christian, uh, Kristen Cobez Dumet. Yes. Um, it's got a memorable so, title. I, I've heard of that book. Um, she's a fantastic writer and historian and scholar. She is a Christian, but she writes about how American society has been affected by the development of the Christian right and the idea of Christian nationalism in our, in our society today. Sounds she writes like about read. it. From, it's very good. She writes about it from a feminist perspective, this book. A lot of this book is about how Christianity has affected the current American attitude on masculinity, which is a very big part of what I my studies broke away into. The patriarchal views, the hierarchical views, and how that affects men, masculinity and toxic masculinity. Right. Um, one of the things about being married to the wonderful woman I have been married to for 20 some years now is her pointing out where toxic masculinity affected my psyche and all of those things I were I learned growing up in this church, growing up in these attitudes, growing up listening to these people tell my mother, you're not a good mother because you're not teaching your teenage son how to be a hierarchical Christian male. These patriarchal views that this church believed were being ingrained. And since my mother was not reinforcing them, that made her a bad mother. What would that even look like? You can turn on the news to this day and you can, you can hear people talking about, you can even hear politicians talking about what it's like to be a Christian man. That's what it looks like. It looks like like a lot of far-right ideas. Right. No, I just mean as far as like teaching your teenage son to be a hierarchical, what, you're supposed to be in charge instead of your mom? Like Saudi Arabia, where she would have to... Yes, yeah. It's crazy. You know, and a lot of what they told her that her shortcomings was as a mother was that there was not a man to teach me how to be the Christian man. Okay. No, be the breadwinner to teach her son how to when he gets married teach his wife to be subservient to him that's so unfair i mean she did so much she worked her ass off she worked three jobs she worked three jobs when i was a kid i raised my smaller brother because she was working third shift to keep a roof over our head right food on our table and that was in the context of these churches and of this religion, that was a shortcoming. Right. The fact that you had to do that was the shortcoming. The fact that there wasn't a man to do that for her was where the sin was. That's I mean, so come on. Unfair. Unfair. It's not just unfair. It's mean. Yeah, it's, it's mean. It's unjust. You yeah. know, it's... Uh, just wrong really yeah as you can tell it's something i'm very passionate about these right well understandably so i mean having had that experience and grown up the way that you did yeah and it's all of these teachings since i left like i said they permeate around in your brain it doesn't leave you like i said it was a positive experience because it taught me a lot of what i don't want to be as a person what i don't want to be as a as a husband I don't right. get father, but I get to be a husband. So it taught me the opposite of what it means to treat my wife with actual respect, with, you know, with to, to actually do my best to platform my wife when I get a chance and, you know, her feelings and her beliefs. I very much could have gone down a, a very like far right train of thought because of these things, but right. I didn't because lucky I had a fantastic person who supported me and spoke with me and like taught me like no that's not it's what life is like from a different perspective that wasn't a Christian man or a religious man in those aspects that I was ingrained into me but at the same time there's uh I fall on to a political spectrum that tends to be on the liberal side. I'm not going to go into politics, but it has affected it 
Religion does affect your politics, though. It does. And here's the thing. To this day, I, I've read the Bible multiple times in my life. I know these teachings very well. Right. And I look at the teachings of Jesus and that I've read in the Bible in my life, and they do still form my worldview. But what they inform my worldview to be is to be those to love one another, to, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, those kinds of things. Like those right. teachings philosophically instilled into me do shape my framework. And like I said, it ended up being a positive thing because I could look back into those teachings and I can pull out things, treat others the way you wanted to be treated. Not just that, but give the inclusive to treat, uh, teachings of Jesus. Exactly. The teachings of Jesus says to his, Jesus and his disciples are in the temple and the rich give to the temple and they give to the temple and this old widow gives her donation to the temple and Jesus says to his apostles she has given more to, than the rest of them because she has less paraphrasing obviously right but, you know, those kind of things going through all of that ended up being positive because I can use those things and those teachings and those are in the forefront of my mind every day because they were ingrained Right. Um, I am very grateful to my mother and for instilling those values and a whole lot of other stuff there that <laughs> I don't agree with and I don't like and I will speak out against. But there are very solid principles that still guide my life to this day. That's that's really that's really good to take that framework and use it for the positive for the pot for the teachings that you do want to use and remember and that's a positive way to kind of flip the negative part yeah, of I mean, it. sometimes you just have to do that for all religion is and for all of being uh ex-evangelical for all of the the things that have like held me up in my life to make me question myself there are those things that I have built a foundation on and have used to try and make the world a better place because of it. And those things didn't come from the church or the negative experience. Those things came from my mother and, you know, her encouraging me to be a better person. And those things came, it, it was a foundation to start on. And luckily I got to be an adult that, could think critically about this stuff. For all of what I've said about my mom being religious and being brought up in this, she always taught me to think as an individual and to think critically and always told me to question things. So I have those foundations that I learned from the church and then I have those teachings, you know, that, that I got from her that I was able to meld together to create a positive experience out of some of these things that did traumatize. Sure. Um, got to be 12 years old and watch the left series where one day God's going to rapture all of the Christians and you might wake up and your whole family is going to be gone. That's 10 years old, 11 years old. That's terrifying. Of you course, know, I very. Remember, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and sweats going running upstairs to see if my family's still in their bed maybe i got left behind you know there are traumatic things that got taught to me but yeah. luckily i had a loving mother who taught me to think critically and then as i got older i was able to really analyze and reassess all of this and right you know it's Look, made me a better you were lucky person. Yeah, it's it's still to this day. It, those thoughts creep into my head. Those kinds of things still they they still get to me. I still have these conversations with my wife where I'm like, "Hey, this is bugging me. This was something I was raised on." Right. So things we learn as children they sink deep. They do, and it makes me want to reach out to people like you who want to share these stories and share people's perspectives. Um, right why I kind of did this. That's great. I think that talking about these things, it helps other people a lot. Right. A lot of people internalize this and they internalize it for their, their whole lives. And mm -hmm. it, it leads to personal issues. It leads to relationship issues. And, 
you know, sometimes it just helps to hear whether my story touches someone or it doesn't. Sometimes it just helps to hear someone else say it out loud. Very much so. I just wanted to ask you one one final question. Where would you say you are today? I am an out-and-out very about atheist. One thing that this led me to through this critical thinking was I, I reached a point within the last few years where I don't believe in anything that I can't materially measure to materially see. I believe in a very scientific outlook to life these days. Like I said, it's, it's led to a political shift in me and that kind of affected the way I view religion and the idea of it, whatever. But yeah, I'm an avowed atheist. I, I just believe that the point of life is to live it and to enjoy it while we're here. When you don't take the time to appreciate what's around you and you're just worried about what's going to happen in life after this, I just believe that it, it leads you to thinking about people and the world around you in a, in a relatively negative way. If your whole goal is to live forever in an afterlife in heaven, then what's the point of being here now? And I'm here now and I want to affect the world and the people around me while I can, while I have a say in it right now. That's very well said. Again, so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank this you very much, Michael. I appreciate it very much. Uh, yeah, this is one of my first ones. So I'm a little, um, little self-doubty and a little shaky here, but. Oh, no, you're, you're great. You're great. And, and I appreciate your time. I mean, I don't, I don't know how long this took. I hope it wasn't too long. Oh, it, I don't have anything going on. I got off of work and I'm going to walk my dogs and go to bed. So, <laughs> okay, well, I'll leave you with that. And, um, and thank you again. Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you for joining us today. Please be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they're released.